Can you open up your um, Bible Swats chapter 2, please? Um, we're going to read again from verse, well, we're going to look at verse 41 to the end of the chapter. What was it? Page 1008. It's got the big Bibles. Acts chapter 2. Um, let me say again, thanks so much for having me over. Uh, I've known Chris for, uh, gosh, ages, I don't know, a long time. Um, I used to live with Chris, actually. Spent a year living with Chris and working with Chris, and that was wonderful. Uh, and I know they're in good hands uh, under him. So thank you so much for having me over. And thanks to the ways that uh, the church family here support us over there uh, in Bradford-by-the-Sea. Um, and Chris is, um, Chris is feeding our church family this morning. So thank you for him. Um, and thank you for all your prayer and wisdom and other ways that you might not even know that you've looked after us uh, and godly examples. So thank you very much. Right, Acts chapter 2. Um, I want to ask you, what would you say is the big story of our time? I mean, what's the, the story that comes up again and again and again um, as you look at the world that maybe rules our age? I think we see the story of our uh, time come out in things like um, books or the, the music that people compose or the films that people make and watch, the art people create, how people spend their leisure time. Those things reflect what is important to people, right? Um, I'm, I'm 33, so I haven't lived through many ages of history, um, but I wonder if you agree with, with this as an idea. Um, I think the uh, the chief story of our age is individualism. That's not individuality, that's just being yourself, isn't it, individuality? But individualism, uh, where what matters most is the rights of the, the individual um, rather than the responsibility to the collective. So you create things just right for yourself, just right for yourself, and maybe just a, it's all about your own expression of yourself, uh, rather than, or while having a much less of a regard for responsibility to other people. Maybe you agree with that's, that's how the world is. Let me show you what I mean. Let's take a little cross-section of the last 50 years or so. Um, so how about um, 52 years, 52 years ago. Oh, that's longer than 50 years. 52 years ago, Paul McCartney wrote this wonderful song, Here, There and Everywhere. Does anyone know it? It's a wonderful song. Um, it's on Revolver, um, the Beatles album. Um, and Paul McCartney said it's his favourite song, actually, that he wrote for the Beatles. It is cracking love song. Um, and I love it. But in, the, in, in it, you get the idea that if the rest of the world passed away, if the person singing the song just had his beloved, everything would be fine. The rest can just disappear for all he cares. It's about his world with his dear love. And maybe there's, you can think of other songs besides. How about the karaoke classic, My Way? Whatever else happens in life, well, I did it my way. Did it my way, that's what's important. Ironically, for a, film, for a song that's all about being yourself, that's being covered 120 times. So uh, it maybe loses its punch after a while, doesn't it? Um, now, uh, we watched, Hannah and I watched a film recently on, um, on Netflix. It's called The Circle, and it had... Um, who are these two? Emma Watson and Tom Hanks in it. Um, and it's about a girl who works for a, a Google sort of company. Um, and within the company, uh, this company is called The Circle, within the company, 
she starts to be followed by millions of people around the world. And so she's got little cameras following her every move. She's broadcast her whole, I mean her whole life, every second of her day is broadcast around the world. No part of the, her life is out of bounds. It's all about watching her and it's about her presenting herself to the world. Um, hopefully I'm not spoiling, not spoiling the film for you. Um, it's not that, it's okay. Um, but she stands on this big internet pedestal in front of million, literally millions of people. Everyone's watching her life. Uh, and along the way, her, um, her best friend and her childhood sweetheart and her parents are just trampled uh, underfoot by this sort of rampant self-expression. And that theme is in countless other films as well. What about social media? I think that nowhere is this seen more powerfully than in social media. And you might have never even looked on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or anything else. But I guarantee that the way we receive the world is influenced by this. You watch the news, there's that little ticker at the bottom, isn't it? It's about what the public think, about people texting in and tweeting and Facebooking into the news. Social media um, has become like the temple of our age. It's there where we see what people really value and what people really worship. And in social media, everyone wants to be an expert. That's that little ticker at the bottom of the news, isn't it? Everyone's texting in as the expert. But expertise is really not valued at all. Everyone's an expert, but there's no expertise. In social media, three loud voices can start a movement that bring down people, even a government. In social media, people only show what they think is the most uh, acceptable, likeable parts of their lives, while the uncomfortable stuff is really hidden. In social media, you don't belong. You collect friends and followers. Your relationships are measured in numbers, not in depth and quality. The point of all this is, I think the story of our age is individualism. We're always being told to build our world as we want it to be. Live the life you want. Take what you can and look out for yourself. You are worth the devotion and attention of others, so put yourself first. And this gets into the church as well. In a church where individualism is king, everyone is consuming but never serving. Everyone expects everything and wants everything to be done for them. Everyone will spend their time and their love and their energy as long as they get something back. And for no other reason. No one expects their lives to be radically changed, only to be made more comfortable and more convenient. And no one is prepared to allow God to be the Lord over their identity, choices and lives, because they've got to be the Lord over those things. Now that would be a church that is denying the gospel. That would be, actually, by God's standards, no church at all. But true belonging, true belonging is not about belonging to yourself, it's about belonging to others. Uh, After all, church is meant to show us what God is like. We're reading uh, 1 Peter as a church family at the moment, and we saw a few weeks ago, God says, Be holy, because I am holy. Church is meant to reflect the character of God, not our character. So this morning we're going to see a church which is massively, utterly different from the story of our time. The church that we see God building in these short verses in Acts wonderfully reflects what God is like. We'll see people won by God, people won for God, and people together becoming more like God because of God's great love. Now, I don't know if you've got 
Oh, you do. You've got some headings. That's good. Um, the first one we're going to look at is devoted to the apostles' teaching. And we're going to look at verses 41 and 42. Devoted to the apostles' teaching. Now, um, I want to say that we are looking at the most revolutionary day this morning in the history of human meetings. The most revolutionary day in the history of human meetings in these few verses. This is the very first church meeting in the world. And as such, it's raw and it's fresh out of the box. It still smells of the showroom. You know, it's so new. It just is very, very fresh. This church is the church that God gathered to himself after the preaching of Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost, uh, which you can read in the preceding verses of chapter 2. So if you look at verse 41, so those who received Peter's word were baptized and were, and there were added to that, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. The message that they accepted is the message of the sermon at Pentecost. The surprising lordship of Jesus Christ. That's the message of Pentecost that Peter preaches. Jesus is Lord and it's a surprise. A lordship which changes lives. So what happens after this sermon? Uh, Well, no one goes for coffee time and to talk about yesterday's football. As an Aston Villa fan, well, we lost to Fulham yesterday, so I'm glad about that. Uh, There's no um, discussion about what's your favourite biscuit and why haven't we got that one this week. There's no mention of anyone slinking out the door to avoid talking about the surprising Lord Jesus Christ. Instead... There's a wholehearted application of this message of Pentecost. I love it. So Peter says, uh, I wonder if I've got, I haven't got these words on screen, sorry. In verse 36, I believe it is. Um, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified. See that, the surprising lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Peter goes on, verse 38. Repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. Peter's response is, Jesus is Lord. Repent and be baptised. What's their response? Verse 41. They receive his word, which means repenting, and they were baptised. Accepting this message is the start of the Christian life. And everything, everything changes for these people because of the message preached, the word preached, and how they receive it. So I want you to imagine the scene. Um, It's not Otley, it's Jerusalem at the time of Pentecost. The city centre is always hot and close and humid and too busy. People crowding the streets. But for the Pentecost festival, especially so, especially busy, people have come from the north and from the south and from the... uh, East and the West. Did I get that right way around? East and West, yep. The languages are really, really mixed. So mixed, you can hardly pick out a word that you understand because everybody's speaking at once. Whichever way you look in the streets, the customs, the clothes, the perfumes, the ethnic backgrounds, the traditions, the appearances, it's just a a heady mix of cultures. At the start of the day, these people shared absolutely nothing in common save for all being in in Jerusalem at the same time. And then Peter stands up, and his word, his message, makes all the difference. It's not the message that, it's not because it's Peter that's speaking, 
it's because he's speaking about the Lord Jesus. The one who rose again and now reigns. And that's it. Massive change for these people. It makes all the difference. By the grace of the Holy Spirit, what was once so different and so separate and distant has become united and beautifully whole and beautifully diverse. The first church is made. God has united people. Verse 41, those who received his word were baptised and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. These people are all so different. And as they come together, they could have spent the first few weeks as, as a church thinking and trying to weigh up, how, am I, how are we going to make it so that everybody, so that this church reflects everybody, so that I can show you what I'm like at church, so that everybody can have their say on exactly how they want church should be. Maybe I get a week when church is what I want, and you get a week when church is what you want. They could have had a very individualistic church, couldn't they? But instead, they spent their time listening to God's plan for the church. So, verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. You hear what God says about the kingdom of God, about church, and about his people. Um, And that teaching, along with what else they do, uh, along with um, fellowship, the breaking of bread and the prayers... Um, and in verse 43, the, the um, particularly first century rubber stamp that was the Apostles' Miracles, those things established the church. So the church is built on this basis. At the bedrock of everything for the church is the surprising lordship of Jesus Christ and the Apostles' teaching. So these believers, these ordinary believers, gathered and had the most privileged lives together of any gathering of people in history the most privileged position of anybody coming together in history they literally sat at the apostles feet they were, they were taught to pray by the men that Jesus taught to pray they ate with men that Jesus ate with they were pastored by the men Jesus pastored is that great? it's wonderful isn't it? but I want to say that they were no more privileged than you are. They were no more privileged than you are. Or that the church has ever been since. The best place to be is here in church now. I I don't want us to feel like the game show contestant who says, Oh, I could have had that. That's what I could have won. If only I'd been born in first century Jerusalem. I've never heard anyone say that on a game show actually. But the first bit, that's what I could have had. No, we're just as privileged. We're just as privileged. Um, Let me show you why. A bit later in the book of Acts, um, we read about the church under attack. You can read about it in Acts chapter 8. And when that happened, this church, this Jerusalem church that we've got in our hands today, was scattered. Was scattered. And it was the ordinary believers who were scattered. The apostles stayed in Jerusalem. It was the ordinary believers who went out. But as you read Acts chapter 8 and the other churches that follow in the book of Acts, we see that the, the disciples, sorry, the, uh, the believers are still devoted to the apostles' teaching. That hasn't changed. The apostles aren't with them, but they're still devoted to their teaching. 
And they were still as privileged as ever. There is no sense in the Bible that without the apostles, the church is less privileged. The important thing was not the men. The important thing was their word, the word that God had given them about himself. Church might not always feel very special, but it wonderfully is. Every church gathering wonderfully is. When the apostles' word is there at the heart, when believers are praying, when there's uh, true fellowship, when true things are said about the Lord, church is the most important gathering. I was saying um, to a couple of people as I drove over this morning, just on the other side of Ilkley, there were about 70, 70 people out on their bikes. Altogether, I think probably passed about 200 people out cycling. Now, I understand Otley's the heart of cycling in Britain, is that right? Yeah, okay. Church is better though, isn't it? You might have the biggest cycling club in Britain, but church is better. Because there we hear from the Lord. Just as privileged as the first century. So let's, um, let's shake off that temptation to think that church is not wonderful. It really is. So this early church is absolutely devoted to the apostles' teaching. Uh, they crave it. Peter, then, the Peter who preached this later writes in his first letter, they crave it. Like babies crave uh, milk. We've got three little kids in our house. And I can tell you, when a baby craves milk, you know about it, don't you? There's no second thought in their mind. What should I... Mm, I'm a bit thirsty. I wish I had... Oh, no, I might wait a bit. <laughs> they crave it, don't they? And everybody knows about it. And they rush to the source of the milk. They, these believers crave the word. These ordinary, different, united people, together they yearn... They yearn to hear God's words, God's very words, with every ounce of their being. And so there's the, real, the shape of church is stunning. Together they shape their diaries around being together. They shape their jobs around being together, uh, as we'll get a hint of in the coming verses. They shape their decisions around church. They shape their family time around church. They shape their desires around church. Because in the apostles' teaching, we see the face of God. Remember, we must always remember this, that church should first be a reflection of God's character and not ours. I think this is very um, striking and something that certainly we need to be continually reminded of. That Bible teaching isn't for our heads. It's not just for our heads. It's it's good to know. Good to know uh, God's word. But actually, it's absolutely about the heart, isn't it? It's about building a true and living relationship uh, with the Lord Jesus. And because it's about your heart, it becomes what you do with your hands as well, and your feet and your mouth and your, your decisions. Uh, when we just leave the Bible in our heads, we are not giving God the credit with our lives that we should. Now, the Apostles' teaching was the teaching of Christ continued Um, And as Christ's teaching was never meant to be just for our heads, neither is the apostles' teaching. Think about the rich man who comes to Jesus in the Gospels and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And in that interaction with Jesus, we see that he knows the law. He knows God's law in his head. He had head knowledge. But Jesus explained uh, the the, um, Gospels' implications on his life And it wasn't head implications. 
it was partly head implications, but it was for his heart and his hands and his eyes and his mouth and his affections. Being devoted to the apostles' teaching, to the teaching of Christ, impacts the whole life. So have a look at how this church learns to do uh, more and more of what the apostles love to do more and more of. Uh, They cherish the teaching, verse 42, and fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. And as we go on, we'll see that they value mission as well. Evangelism. And where do you think the apostles learned all of those things and a devotion to those things? They learned it from the Lord Jesus, didn't they? They learned it from the Lord Jesus. So how do we think about the word of God? How do you think about the word of God? How is your devotion to it, to the apostles' teaching? And here, this is the, the, the apostles' teaching is the implications of God's word being preached, isn't it? This is about preaching here in Acts chapter 2. Sometimes, when we come to church, uh, we might think, I'm really looking forward to what the pastor's got to say today. Well, maybe we need to change that and say, I'm desperate to hear God's voice through the preached word today. And then what about after church? I really enjoyed that sermon. Should become, I really want that preached word to change my life. So let me ask you three questions. When was the last time that you really changed something about your life because of the preached word? Really changed it. Or when was the last time that you prayed that God would change you through the preached word. Or when was the last time that you submitted yourself so strongly to the call of the gospel that you felt the uncomfortable joy of a life being changed? Or has it been a while? When did you last feel that uncomfortable joy of your life being changed as you submit to the teaching of the word? Um, comfort is a, um, is a really big danger in the Christian life. Uh, and as we listen to the, to the world, we're told to be comfortable. As we listen to individualism, we're told to be comfortable. Uh, but Jesus never says that the Christian life will be comfortable. But he does say it's worth it. And we mustn't let the call of the gospel lose its radical nature. Devotion to the apostles' teaching was radical in the first century. We mustn't think that this somehow was a natural thing. This is radical change to society in the first century. I wonder if it's still as radical now. Why don't I pray that it would be? And then we'll move on. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. It calls us um, out of darkness into light. It calls us out of ourselves towards yourself. Uh, I pray that we never forget that the Christian life is to be lived for you, not for ourselves. Help us to be happy to submit to what you say, uh, even when it's uncomfortable. Amen. Amen. Let's carry on. Right, um, secondly, devoted to each other um, is our second little heading. Um, There was some research released earlier this month, it might have been the end of January, um, which stated that two-thirds of adults, two-thirds of adults in the UK, have no one to talk to about the big problems in their lives. Two-thirds, that's really sad, isn't it? Two-thirds of our country has no one to talk to about the big problems in life. 
Um, and then at the beginning of the year, Theresa May announced that she was going to create a new position within the cabinet. It's the position of loneliness, loneliness minister, which has been filled by um, a woman called Tracy Crouch. I hope she does a wonderful job. Um, our society, it seems, has a really chronic disorder, and it's loneliness. Two-thirds of adults, we need a loneliness minister. We're a lonely society. Maybe you know that pain all too well. Uh, maybe you see it in friends that you wish would open up to you, but they just won't. Uh, maybe you felt it yourself in the recent past. Maybe you even feel it today. And so often we end up asking ourselves, where do I belong? And that's strange, isn't it? Because um, on the one hand, our world has never been more connected than it is now. You can get your phone out of your pocket and see what your cousin in Australia is doing or what they've had for breakfast. And yet, and yet, people are more isolated now than they've ever been before. I don't at all want to be flippant about a very real problem, but I do want to say that God has given us the perfect antidote, the perfect solution to that. Uh, the church that God is building, as we see here in Acts chapter 2, is the perfect place for belonging. Because here it is found that inexpressible, well, actually it is expressible because it's God's expression of his own abundant love. But what otherwise would be so alien to the world, God's wonderful abundant love is shown through the church. The first century church overflows with love. I hope you enjoy these few verses here, verse um, 44, 5 and 6. Uh, we're going to have a look at this most beautiful community that there is this side of, this side of glory, this side of Jesus' return. Um, these believers are completely devoted to each other. Have a look at verse 44 with me, please. All who believed were together and had all things in common. And selling their possessions and belongings, uh, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and di- distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. This is, this is big stuff, whether it's the first century or the 21st century. You get a real sense in these verses that these people know that they're together. They know their togetherness under God. They know that Christ's work is to unite people. Um, so we're going to have a look at the four ways in which this is radical togetherness. Uh, three will be short, and I'm going to spend a bit longer on one of them, because it shows, it demonstrates all of them in action. Uh, Firstly, all the believers were together. Um, That is verse 44. All who believed were together. All of them. So they're committed to each other. It just says they were all together. Uh, Brothers and sisters, we we can't underestimate the importance of being together. It's important and good for you. And it's important and good for the other people in the room that you're here, and it's important and good for the glory of God. All the believers were together. Uh, secondly, they had. Oh, I think I've got some. some uh, sorry. There we go. All the believers were together. Secondly, they had everything in common. Um, I don't think this means financially. I think this just means they had everything in common. They were united. Uh, in spite of their huge differences of, of language and ethnicity and age and race, 
These people can now honestly say, because of Christ, they have all things in common. Great. We're going to spend a bit more time on this third one. This one, I think, is about uh, money and possessions. They express what God has done for them in the gospel through their possessions. Um, So verse 45. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, our culture is absolutely obsessed with money and possessions, isn't it? Um, whenever something like Brexit is um, reported on, on the news, I wonder if you've noticed this, when, whenever um, reporters talk about the end result of the Brexit negotiations, they always talk about it in terms of money. It's always money, isn't it? Nothing else seems to be the, the, um, the end result of Brexit. It's always how will the economy do as a result. Um, and you can think about that for other things in the news as well. Why money? It's because money is our culture's ultimate measure of happiness and worth. Our culture is obsessed with money and possessions. Uh, and, and you are affected by that. I'm affected by that as well. You might not realise it. You might try to um, fight it, but we all are. We all swallow the message of the world. The money you've got is yours. Use it just on yourself. And it takes an awful lot to cut through that message. Because we hear it all the time. Uh, Christians, we know what it is to receive grace and generosity from the Lord Jesus in the richest possible way. Um, But be honest, it's really hard to give up your money, isn't it? Really hard. So I think we're going to find a, a straight up, straightforward reading of verse 45 really quite hard. I suspect... Initially, we want to explain verse 45 away and try and find some reason why that's just a first century thing. That that doesn't really apply anymore. Because doing that, doing verse 45, sounds really tough, really uncomfortable. Because we all love money. Because we're told to from birth. Now, when the early church saw someone in need within the church... Together, they prayerfully considered how best to support them. And where appropriate, the believers, uh, church family, would sell their land and their buildings and their prized possessions for the sake of someone that Christ had laid down his life for. Does that sound too hardline? Sound a bit beyond you? Look, I think this is one way that the church shows the beauty of God. Uh, it would be really sad, I think, if I stood here and tried to explain away this verse and tell you that it doesn't have any implication now, or that I stood here and pretended it was a first century quirk. No, this is a church who will say to each other, look, brother, sister, I value you more highly than myself. I hold your good so dear that I'm willing to go without what I do not need so that you may have what you do need. Your trouble and distress are so important to me that I will give up my possessions for what you need. Not what you want, what you need. 
This is human relationships at their most beautiful. This is uh, human relationships at the most beautiful because they reflect God's love for his people. Who would give, God who would give uh, people's greatest need. Who would give them his own son. And this is true family and this is true belonging. This is a great act of beauty. Now we can't give what Christ gave. He laid down his life. Because only his blood could atone for our sins. But we are given the privilege of learning to give in a similar manner. Sacrificially and out of love. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, um, verse 2, we're told that um, Christ endured the cross and its shame. And he did it for the joy. He did it for joy doesn't mean he enjoyed the process, but he knew that it would be good for others, and that was joy to him. He knew that his saving work would bring many to glory. Well, here the church expresses joy by laying down their possessions for others, for their good. We can give in a similar manner to Christ, sacrificially and out of love. Uh, But it's possible that you've wondered, as I did quite a while reading these verses over the years, How is this different from a cult practice? How is this different from communism in the first century or something like that? All these people just selling and giving away. Well, it's different because of the most fundamental thing of all. It's different because they give out of love, not out of manipulation. There's no sense of manipulation here. There is a great sense of love for each other. So it works something like this, I think. The church leaders are made aware of somebody in need. And when I say in need, I mean bread on the table, roof over the head sort of need. And so from a central pot of money, the church leaders give as it's needed. Um, This isn't cult practice or first century communism. It's a community of love. And these people love each other so deeply because God has shown his love for them. Now, you had Jerry with you last week, um, didn't you? Um, He was telling me the other day, um, about when he was, when he and his wife Catherine were um, living in London, they went to a church called Dagenham Parish Church. Um, and one day, the vicar stood up in front of the church family. It might have been a, a prayer meeting, I think, or something like that. Um, and Mike, who's the vicar, uh, told them of an anonymous family within the church who were in this sort of position, who were in great need, not food, didn't have food on the table, didn't, were struggling to keep the roof over their heads. Now he knew the family. And he knew their poverty was genuine. He knew their faith in Christ was genuine. And so he asked the church family to consider sacrificial giving to support them in their need to put food on the table, to keep the roof over their head. And do you know what? The church responded just as you'd hope. Now naturally, I think we want to explain away verse 45. But actually, how can we? How can we object to something like that? It's a very beautiful thing, isn't it? Which reflects God's love reflects God's love for his people. So Peter, Peter who preached uh, at Pentecost, would write later on, once you were not a people, but now you are a people. What was so different has been united. So let me ask you the question that you might not want to be asked. Would you do this? Would you sell your possessions, your precious things, for somebody who is precious to God, for their need? 
You might know people in that position already. You might know believers who are in that sort of position. And I think within the, without meaning um, to say uh, anything to overshoot my station, I'm not claiming to be a prophet or anything like that, but just looking at the patterns of life, I think within the next um, few decades, 10, 20 years, um, we're going to see more Christians in this sort of position. It's not for economic reasons. I don't mean because of how the economy is doing um, or anything like that. Um, it's because our culture is more and more individualistic. Within 10 years, can't you imagine just a normal, everyday Christian being fired from their job because they shared the gospel with somebody? Right? Because in, in our culture, the gospel is offensive. I can, I, I can think of people within our church family in Morecambe for whom I can definitely see that being the case. It's not because they do anything wrong. They're just saying what God says. Can't you imagine Christians being imprisoned for preaching the gospel over the next few years? You might think of, might have people in your head that you're thinking of. Now, of course, that's a family cut off from income, isn't it? A family struggling to put food on the table and keep a roof over their head. A family in great need. So faithful believers in a time which hates the gospel are going to face times of need. So their brothers and sisters, the church, needs to be ready to sacrificially give, have that deep, practical commitment to one another. I make more of that third out of four points because I think that's a, a real practical application, a way that we see the others come together. Number four, um, they're committed to this life together. Uh, so what the way that they started, they continued. Verse 46 Day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God. Verse 47. I love this picture of family. Um, you, you can't imagine these believers just walking away from each other for any reason other than the very best of reasons, can you? They are family. They carry on with the same devotion to the Lord and to each other, uh, not out of duty or religious obligation, but because they praise the God Verse 47, who saved them. Day in, day out, their commitment to one another is strong. So this church is very radical, isn't it? It changes absolutely everything. And for these believers, it flips their decisions upside down. Remember that they were um, separate and now they're united. So how do you make decisions? Um, It's definitely worth asking that. So this evening... Uh, what will you do with your time? This afternoon, what will you do with your time? How do you decide what to watch on um, on Netflix or on TV? Uh, how do you decide how to spend your money or what priorities you have for life? Now, as individualism comes into the church, the way we make decisions can look something a bit like this. So we'll start at the bottom. At the basis of everything for making decisions uh, is, is that individualism. It might not be social media for you, but the, but the impact of individualism does affect you. We start to build our decisions based on those quick things that we pick up as we skip through life. Apparently the average time that somebody spends reading a web page now is 14 seconds. 14 seconds! Goodness me, you can hold your breath a lot longer than that, can't you? You can't learn anything in 14 seconds. No deep thinking is needed. You just consume what other people uh, already say. Case in point, social media. So a lot of the time we make our decisions based on those quick uh, drips that hit us. After that, well, we might dip into the internet to back up some ideas. 
So things like Wikipedia become a reliable resource. If you don't know Wikipedia, it's an encyclopedia that's not necessarily written by experts. <laughs> uh, blogs fuel our, fuel our opinions and decisions. When you get past, if you want to really think deeply, perhaps we might read a book. Um, we might flip through a book. But very often, the books that we read are the ones that have been suggested to us by, well, the internet. Or people who we want to think like. We usually read just to back up what we already think. Sometimes we get our wisdom from observing the, the world in general. Maybe the patterns of creation or the way things just happen in the world. After that, it's possible we let church shape our views and our decisions. But really, that's a long way down the list or up the list on that pyramid. And finally, well, we might turn to the Bible. The Christians don't often say this, but sometimes it's a case of, in case of emergency, break open the Bible. But how different this Acts chapter 2 church is, and how much richer and more pleasing to God it is. At the very basis of everything is the living and abiding word of God for these believers in Acts chapter 2. God has spoken, and it does us good to listen. And everything is based on that. Remember, verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now after that, well, the church administers God's word to the world. God gives us each other to grow in love for him and for each other. That should shape our lives. Through the word, through the church, we can observe the world around us. God's made it. He's put certain good patterns into it that we can um, learn from for our lives. It's good for us to learn from the world. Think about the book of, book of Proverbs. That's what it's all about. After the Bible, after the church, after the world, well, you know, books, good books can really help us make decisions. We should read widely. We should read old books. We should read on recommendations from actual people that we actually know and actually trust. And then, suddenly, the internet is not the authority we take it to be. It is way down the list. Wikipedia and quick hit information sites, of course they could be consulted, but with a bit of caution. And finally, within that, that hectic, non-stop, instantaneous, knee-jerk world of social media, that temple of individualism, it should affect our lives least of all. Of course, that's upside down to the way the world shapes lives and makes decisions. Acts chapter 2 really challenges us deeply to build our decisions around the word and around church. Because that's where we belong. That's going to take some really careful thinking for realigning of our decisions, of our view of the world, of the shape of our lives, I'm sure. Um, it has to start with God's word and the church. And let the rest follow on, but only in good order, only in their right place. After all, church is not the expression of individuals. individuals it's the expression of God through his gathered people. So your devotion to your uh, church family matters much more than you realise. Let's have a look at verse 47. We're thinking of the fruit of devotion as we close. We'll just finish off for a couple of minutes. Okay, so in this closing sentence, we see uh, that their devotion is a fruitful devotion. It's blessed by God. Every church leader, I take it, wants their church to grow, no matter how big it is. Uh, And people... Church leaders have often chased that, or still do, chase that growth in lots of ways. Sometimes that might be uh, making empty promises, or promises they know to be untrue. Sometimes church leaders bend too much to be like the culture around them, 
sometimes church leaders are sadly guilty of emotional manipulation. Uh, They've all been tried, um, but they're not God's way. Have a look at the brilliant simplicity of God's way, verse uh, 47. Gospel growth comes as the church is just the church. Verse 47. uh, They praise God and have the favour of all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. There is no magic formula here. Uh, It's very simple. It's just believers devoted to the apostles' teaching and to each other, as we've seen, and the church grows. Now, I don't want to say that's a guarantee of church growth. I don't want to say this is an absolute guarantee and God is faithless if this doesn't happen. But I do want to say, I do think, uh, that the church which prayerfully pursues these qualities should expect gospel growth. It should expect growth in a knowledge of the Lord Jesus and a, a love of God and it should expect to see more people becoming believers. Sometimes in church history and in the patterns of church life, and I've seen this um, in churches definitely, and I think probably what's happened in, the, in Britain widely, um, the church shrinks. But it's clear what the church is at that time. It's really clear. You can see what Christians believe. And then, uh, under God, prayerfully, it's time to grow again. But, I think, a church which prayerfully pursues these things should expect gospel growth. Um, Sometimes I look at at our church back home, um, and I wonder how we can faithfully grow our church. Um, And I think that this... Uh, I think that these couple of things that I'm about to say, I think I've heard other people say them as well, and I wonder if you've ever thought these things for your church. So we could say, we could say, we're not growing very fast as a church. Uh, It could even be that you look at the last year and you think, actually church hasn't grown, the opposite has happened. And I've seen that in our church at times. Um, We could say, church isn't growing very fast. But then look at the world around us. What can we possibly expect? Just stay faithful and be content with things as they are. The UK church has said that for a long time, I think. And there are elements of truth to that. Just stay faithful and carry on. Uh, But I wonder if we begin to make excuses for ourselves. Of course the church is the Lord's to grow in his good timing. But the church has a call to faithfulness. So maybe instead we should say, well, we're not growing very fast as a church. I wonder if our devotion to the apostles' teaching is strong enough. I wonder if our devotion to each other is strong enough. I wonder if our love for the lost is is strong enough. I wonder if we are wholeheartedly overjoyed by the gospel as we should be. I wonder if our heart's desire is to better know and be more like the Lord. Um, We're not called to something stuffy and dry, no matter what the world thinks of church. Uh, To quote the Apostle Peter again, we are a holy priesthood, a holy nation. In fact, we sang that before, didn't we? We sang that um, song which echoed those words. A people of God's own possession that we might declare his praises, the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvellous light. The church is like nothing else on earth, and that is a very, very good thing. It's a very good thing. So where the world says, where the world says, uh, I 
will honour my own desires. I am worth it. I will look after me because I'm good news. The church says we will honour God's desires. He is worth it. He will, we will look after you with God's good news. Let's pray. Father in heaven, it does us good to see your uh, hand in history. It does us good to uh, remember your grace. Help us to uh, remember what we need to learn and do um, as we see your character in these verses. And help us all to grow in our commitment to church. Uh, Whatever our stage, uh, whatever our position, whatever our capacity, help us all to grow in our dedication to church because there we dedicate ourselves to your word and to each other. Thank you, Father, for the the beauty uh, of church to call us out of ourselves and to one another for your sake. I pray that we honour you and we look forward to that day when there will no longer be any uh, hostility towards church, no longer be uh, any hostility towards the gathered people of God when Christ returns and gathers his people once for all. I pray that we love each other now uh, as we ever will do then. Amen.